And all the kids said, oh, man. And all the parents said, it's the most wonderful time of the year. No, you know, I love, I love summer and I love being with my kids. I love being with them. I love all the extra time that happens. How many of you guys like being with your kids? Come on, you got to raise your hand. It's church. You like being with your kids? You like being with your family? There's something so important to that. That's a very powerful word. There's this powerful, very, very powerful word um, that maybe you not considered as important, um, but you've been moved by the power of it. You've been moved by the power of what this word means. It's a relational word, and it's a very common word. And if you ignore this word, it could have detrimental effects in your relationships. Every one of us has been deeply impacted for the good and for the bad by this word, and it's the word with. With, what do I mean? It's important that we be with people. It's important that we be with our family. It's important that we be with our church family. It's important that we spend time with the Lord. We live in an age that's full of information, but not necessarily full of wisdom. We live in a time where you can connect with almost anyone at any time. Who agrees with me? You, you can get to, if you want to get to me, you can email me. You can Facebook message me. You can post on my wall. You can text me. You can call me. You can come visit me at the church. How are you with me? We have so much access to each other in so many ways. But making connections that are authentic and deep with someone in the same room because of the same tools that we have to make connections sometimes makes connections very difficult. Have you felt that before? You go in public and you say hi to somebody and it's more and more rare for people to respond to you, right? It was a time when everybody said hi to each other. Even in our own home, sometimes we're all in the same room, but we're not with each other. Have you ever experienced that? And I'm not saying that as like some old guy getting older. I, I, I do that. There are times where somebody's trying to get my attention, but I'm really focused on this thing in my hand. <laughs> dad, 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 dad. Anybody have that? And that goes on. When you think about the people, though, that have impacted you, I believe there is a correlation between the amount of time that they've spent with you and the impact that they had on you. There's, there is such a thing as quality time, but I believe a lot of times quality time does not come but by a quantity of time. There has to be time with each other. When you think about those people that have impacted you, they spent time with you. Now, over the last two chapters in this book of Hebrews that we've been studying, Hebrews chapter 9 into chapter 10, there has been a description of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ sacrificed his own body. He is both priest and sacrifice, the Bible teaches us. That he died on the cross, and when he died on the cross, he was sacrificing his life. He was substituting himself 
on our behalf. When God poured out his wrath for Jesus, he was paying for our sin. He was pouring out his justice, his judgment on, um, on Jesus for our sin. So that God could then declare us righteous like this choir sang today. He can come back with a verdict of not guilty because Jesus Christ paid the price so that we could be declared not guilty. Who's excited about that? That's an amazing thing, right? Why, though, was we know that being given uh, justification, being declared righteous is a good thing, and being free from the guilt of that is a good thing. But is that, is that the sole and only part or the reason why Jesus did that? Why did God do that? Why was the sacrifice made? What, why was it needed? And what does it mean for us today? How, shall, how should we live and how can we live now that this sacrifice has been made? And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus for his sacrifice and you allow his substitute, his, his payment for your sins to be put on your account, God takes away his sin, gives you his righteousness. How, how the, it's kind of like that famous question, how shall we then live? What should we do with that? Why did God do that? And I believe that at least in part, the concept can be found in this little word, with. When you get to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, uh, you'll find it to be, that we're going to read verses 19 through 25. We're going to study that all the way through. And really, you'll find two sentences. That's what this whole paragraph is, two sentences. And there are two terms that are used multiple times that give us the structure to our text. If you look in verse chapter 10, they, uh, you guys have your Bibles? Do you guys have Bibles? Okay, it's always good to have a Bible. That's what we're going to look at. Chapter 10, verse 19, you see the first word in verse 19. Everybody say what the first word is in 19. Yes. Having. Then you go to verse 20 word, 21, and it says, and, what's the? Yes. Having. And then, so you have two havings. Having this and having that. And he says, with that, verse 20, 22, let us. Do you see that? What's the first two words? Verse 23. You got it? Verse 24, let us. Here's his basic structure. Since you have this, and since you have that, because of that, on that beta says, let us do this. Okay, do you get it? Because you have that, let us do this. You've been given a million dollars. Let's go on vacation. Right? Do you get it? Because this has happened, this is how you live. Who agrees if you get a million dollars, you're going to take a few weeks off? Okay. Kind of the idea. He says in verse 19... Having, therefore, 21, and having, verse 22, let us, verse 23, let us, verse 24, let us. And what I'm going to show you today from this text is that the preacher, the author of Hebrews, is making a case for the why, at least a part of the implication of the why, for Christ's sacrifice. Now, I know the ultimate why. Jesus wanted to glorify his Father. He wanted to make much of his Father. But that's not the only reason. He's making the case that not only was Jesus wanting to be obedient to the Father 
And of course, Jesus died on the cross to make payment for our sins. And of course, Jesus rose from the dead and is sitting. Remember last week? He's sitting on the right hand of the Father. The whole thing's been done. Everything that was, if you weren't here last week, the, the previous passage talks about how that he's sitting on the right hand of the Father. The sacrifices in the Old Testament kept going and kept going and kept going, and the priest never sat because sin is never ultimately finally paid for. But because Jesus made the full and final price for sin in his sacrifice, he can now sit down because everything that's needed to be done to pay for my sin is complete. It's over. It's been done. He became a propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sin of the whole world. It's good news. Why did he do it? The answer is found in that little word with. Through Christ's sacrifice, here's the point. God has made it possible for us to be with him. And not just one day, right now. You can spend time with God. You can spend time in God's presence. You can go to God. And because of Christ's sacrifice, God has made it critical for us to be with each other. So based on Jesus' sacrifice, I can go to God. I can be with him. And I should have a relationship with people based on that sacrifice. These two phrases that begin with having... This word having point to what God has done for us and given to us. And then these three phrases that begin with let us point to what we ought to, how we ought to live with these new realities in place. And so if I were to summarize the sermon today, I would say this. Christ's sacrifice is so important, not just for the afterlife, but for the life of disciples now. If you're a believer it's important for you now. If you're an unbeliever, it's important for you now. You need to understand what I'm about to tell you. We should respond to his sacrifice. He's laid out the case for Christ's sacrifice being superior. We should respond to his sacrifice in these three ways. We'll find it in those three let us statements. The first thing we ought to, the first way we ought to respond is this. Let us enter God's presence. Let us Enter God's presence. Look at verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, these are people who know Christ as Savior. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, when the preacher writes the word therefore, he's establishing that what he's about to say on what has been said throughout the book, especially in chapter 10. In chapter 10 so far, we've understood or we've been taught that Christ has become the testator or the one who guaranteed by his death our inheritance through the payment of his blood. Anybody looking forward to that inheritance? It's going to be awesome. In doing this, he became a sacrifice for sins forever. He is now seated at the right hand of God in the presence of God. He intercedes for us, meaning he goes to God on our behalf and will one day defeat all his enemies. 
And, the Bible, and it says he'll even make them his footstool. He has made this new covenant, this new promise, which puts the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, down into us as a down payment of our inheritance. The Bible talks about in Ephesians that he's the earnest of our inheritance. He's the down payment, letting us know that more is on the way. And our sins have been totally forgiven, if you know Christ as your Savior, by the blood of Jesus. He now uses the word having to establish what we have now in Christ. He says in verse 19, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. The preacher describes the place where God dwells as the holiest. In the, um, in the day and time, even when this is written, this is written before the, uh, the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. And in that temple, there was, uh, and we've described this several times, it was an earthly temple that was kind of modeled after the earthly tabernacle. This tent that Moses made, God instructed Moses to make, when they went from Egypt into the promised land. And in this place, there was the outer court, there was the, uh, the inner court, there was the holy place, that's where all the priests could be, and that's where they did their sacrifices. Then there was the holy of holies. How many of you guys have heard that before in church? If you haven't, that's fine. The holy place where the priest could go, the holy of holies is the place that only one priest could go. He could only go in once a year. And he would go in and sprinkle the blood of a spotless lamb on the mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant. No one would think in that culture that it was appropriate or proper. There was no Jew who would just walk in to the temple, walk past all the priests, and just pull the veil back and walk into the Holy of Holies. That would have been atrocious, that would have been blasphemous, it would have been shocking. You know, when you come here today, um, we may have a door or two locked, but not because we're worried about you going into a blasphemous part of this place. Are you with me? It wouldn't be blasphemy for you to go into a different room because this, this, this is not the temple. This is, I, I don't even think this is the sanctuary. This is where the, the people who are now the sanctuary meet once a week. We don't have a temple. We're the temple. Do you get it? So to go into that holy of holies at that time would have been like, oh, what is he doing? If you had a kid, that it would have never been able to happen. I mean, it just wouldn't have happened. But to someone to go in and get into that place, there would, you would have, no one has the boldness to do that. In fact, to, according to tradition, we find that even the one who was allowed to go in once a year, they would tie a rope around his leg so that if he went in there and he wasn't worthy and he fell over dead in the presence of God, they'd be able to pull him out without going in. Do you get it? But he says, when Jesus died on the cross, something happened. The veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the holy place got torn from top to bottom. Now we don't, we don't worry about the Holy of Holies because now we can go to God. We can get to God ourselves. We don't need to go through a priest. We don't need to go through a priest. In fact, the priesthood is over. That priesthood is. There's a new priesthood, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and there's one person holding that office, and his name is Jesus Christ. So now we have boldness. We can go to Jesus, we can go through Jesus and get to God because of what? Verse 19. We enter into the holiness by the 
blood of Jesus. God is omnipresent and doesn't dwell in a temple made with hands any, anymore. We are the temple. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own, for you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The Jews had no access to the presence of God in their temple. The earthly temple was a picture of the true temple, not made with hands where God dwells. Since Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin, we can have boldness and not fear going into the presence of God. We don't come into the Holy of Holies or the presence of God with fear like they did. We can be with God. Where two or more are gathered in his name, so am I in the midst of them, right? Are you with me? We can enter together into the presence of God. Are you guys excited about that? You can't get to Joe Biden. You can't get to Donald Trump. Some of you guys sound like you want to get to, to some of those guys, right? You can't access those. Are you with me? You could talk to God. Right now. And he pays attention. And he loves you. And he knows everything about you. This is, are you kidding me? This is unbelievable. You can get to God. Some of you are doing your week without God. Sometimes I do my week without God. God, I got, a, I got my planner, and I got my agenda, and I got my to-do list, and I got my calendar, and uh, I got this. Some of you guys don't even have to-do lists or calendars. I mean, you do. You just don't write it down. You have no idea what you're doing. We're trying to do things on our own power, and then when it messes up, then that's when we go to God. It's a bad plan. God, what do you want from me? We can go to God. We can be in the presence of God. We have an access that they did not have because we've been given an advocate that they did not have indwelling them. This advocate, Jesus also, who paid the price that, blood, that the blood of bulls and goats could not ultimately pay. We can go in because of the blood of Jesus. And so we have boldness to enter. How do we enter? Verse 20, by a new and living way. Jesus shed his blood and he died, but what happened? He rose from the dead, and now where is he? Sitting on the right hand of God. You can go to God. You can go to God, and Jesus is right there interceding on your behalf. If you don't even pray the right things, the Bible says he prays the right things for you. His body, it says here, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil. That is to say, his flesh. Now he's making a metaphor, a picture. 
the veil was torn, his body was torn. And now we have access to God because there doesn't have to be a veil anymore. We, there doesn't even have to be a temple anymore. We can go to God without that. His sacrificial death opened the veil of the holy of, to the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God. We now have access to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ by his torn body. Yet our sacrifice for sin, Jesus, did not stay dead. No, our sacrifice for sin is alive right now. He's our living sacrifice that intercedes to God on our behalf. That's what's explained in verse 21. Here's the second thing that we have. Not only do we have boldness to enter, we have a high priest over the house of God. This is the second having. We have boldness to enter. We, we have the high priest over the house of God. Not only was he the sacrifice for us, now he's our representative. We can boldly go into the presence of God because we have an advocate. We have a mediator. We have Jesus Christ the righteous who goes to God on our behalf. So it's on the basis of those two arguments. Don't you see what you have? You've got a million dollars. Go on vacation. You have boldness to enter. There's no more veil because the veil was torn. You now have access to God through the blood of Jesus who isn't dead. He's alive and he's there by, Christ. He's there by God for you as your mediator and your advocate. You have a new and living way to get to God. So let us draw near. Verse 22. Let us draw near. Loved ones, not only, you know, it's one thing to have like official access, right? The, the president of the company may see you now. You have from 10.05 to 10.10 to give them all of what you want to tell them. You can have access to somebody without being close to them. Do you get it? But he says, let us draw near. You can not only have access to God in terms of just like straight, like, yeah, God help me out. You can have a relationship with God that's close, that's intimate. Now, some of you ladies are shaking your heads, but some of you guys are like, I don't want intimate. But what, I'm, what I mean is, what did God choose to call himself? Father. He really can be our father. He really can be someone who loves you and cares about you and takes care of you. And you can have a relationship with him. Make sure you get the argument. You have a new boldness to go into God's presence. You have a new and living way. So... Let us draw near with a true heart. How's our heart true? He made it true. He cleansed it. What does he say? In full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You're clean. You're forgiven. Your sin is gone. You can go to God. You can be with God. He can be with you. You can have a relationship with God. I've had people tell me, uh, I, I'm like, hey, 
we talked about the gospel. We talked about salvation. We, we talked about, hey, you died, Christ died on the cross for your sins. You put your faith and trust in Christ. You turn from your sin to him by faith. You can be forgiven. I've had people in that moment tell me, but yeah, I just don't know if I'm ready. There's some things I gotta clean up. There's some sin I'm doing that I gotta clean up. And while I think that repentance is necessary for salvation, if you're waiting to be perfect to get saved, you'll never get saved. Are you with me? Repentance is not becoming perfect. Repentance is agreeing with God about your sin. Do you, are you with me? It's like saying, I'm too dirty for a bath. The bath is what's going to clean you up. Are you with me? When we get saved, God cleanses us from our sin. And he, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old is gone and the new has come. We've been cleansed. Here he talks about our hearts being sprinkled and our bodies being washed with pure water. He says here, having our sins sprinkled from an evil conscience. Every year the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, like I said, and sprinkle the blood of, this, of a sacrifice on the mercy seat. Christ's blood has sprinkled our hearts. It says, are our bodies washed with pure water? This phrase references all of the ceremonial cleansings by the priest. They were constantly washing themselves in basins of clear water. This does not here refer to baptism, but to how the Holy Spirit cleanses us, as referred to in Ephesians 5.25, by the washing of the water by the word. Christ washes us by his spirit through his Word. This same idea of sprinkling and cleansing is exactly what was predicted that Jesus would do. In Isaiah 52, which begins that passage that goes right into Isaiah 53, we studied it a few months ago. It says this, talking about the servant that was to come who is clearly Jesus, prophesied 700 years before Jesus came. This is what it says. Behold, this is God speaking, talking about his servant, the servant being Jesus. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man and his form in the sons of men. Wait a minute, that's, that's two contrasting verses. Your servant's gonna be exalted and extolled and be very high, but his body, his visage is gonna be so marred that he won't even be recognized as a man. And his form more than the sons of men, verse 15, so shall he sprinkle many nations. How is Jesus so marred that he's unrecognizable? The crucifixion, the shedding of blood. And when he died on the cross for our sins, he wasn't just paying for the sins of the Jews. In this way, he sprinkled many nations to the point that the kings shut their mouths at him. For that which they had not been told, it shall they see. That which they had not heard, shall they consider. The point of Jesus' sacrifice was to cleanse us. And when we're clean, now we, because of what Jesus did, are acceptable to go into the presence of God. Now we have boldness to get to God. 
Now we have access to get to God. We're going by a new and living way. We have a representative. Let us, brethren, I'm talking to you now, let us, everyone in here who knows Jesus as Christ, and even some of you that don't, let me help you to know him so that you can draw near. So that you can have a relationship with God. So that you can talk to God and he can speak to you through his word. What an incredible gift we have, loved ones. What an incredible thing. We can enjoy the presence of God because of our intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you have a place where you can go to meet with God? It can be anywhere. But I'm saying more for you than for him. Do you have a place? Do you have a time? I meet with God at my desk at home most mornings. I meet with God in my office sometimes. I've met with God with men in this church during the week. We've come into this room and knelt down and prayed for many of you. I met with God in my car. Don't worry, Doug, I keep my eyes open. <laughs> my Honda Accord can become the Holy of Holies. I can be bold to ask for the things that I need to live the way God wants me to. So can you. Why? Because you have an advocate with the Father. Because his spirit is in me, washing me from my sin. Because he shed his blood for my salvation and my sanctification. Because he wants to draw, near to, draw us near to himself as sons. So because of Christ's sacrifice for us, Loved ones, let's, let's, let's draw near into his presence. Here's a second way we should respond. Number two, let's endure without wavering. Let's endure without wavering. Here's what he says. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering. For he, if you agree with this phrase, say amen. For he is faithful that promised. The object of our faith that we possess and profess is the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the Old and New Testaments. He is our high priest to God. He has made the boldness and the entry into this holiest of all possible. He is who we profess. He is faithful to keep us by keeping his promise to us. And so in return, we ought to endure in our profession, living according to what we say we believe no matter the cost. It cost Jesus what? It cost him his body and his blood. It cost him enduring the, the wrath of God. And he is faithful. Our sins, they were many. His mercy is more. He can be trusted. You can trust God. He made promises, and you need to hear this. It can be good for you, but it also could be bad for you. God always, 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 always keeps his promises. He always keeps his promise. God was faithful to us before we ever responded to it or even recognized it. We love him because he first loved us. And you may be here today and you think that Jesus is a joke. 
You may think that Jesus is just another religious entity used to control people. But I want to tell you this. Whether you believe it or not, your sin has made you God's enemy. Just like my sin made me God's enemy. But here's the good news. God loves his enemies. But God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for you before you believed and while you were a sinner. And I don't, I don't think it's wrong. I think it's, I think it's specific to the verses and in the whole of Scripture that God is love. And I can look at anybody and tell them God loves you. God loves you. He demonstrated that by sending his son to die for you. With such a cost paid so that I can have eternal life and access to the Father, it would be a, such a shame for me to de deny my Savior. We should not forsake him in any way. He has made a way into the holiest of all, so I should go there. I should pray. I should read his word. I should go to him for everything and with everything. Why would I deny the only thing that, the only way that I can be made right with God? Because of Christ's sacrifice for us, let us enter into God's presence. Because of Christ's sacrifice for us, let us endure for him without wavering. Number three, because of Christ's sacrifice for us, let us encourage Christ's body. Let us encourage Christ's body. Look at verse 24. And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Consider here means to think about our brethren, to figure them into our thinking. If all you think about is you and yours, you're doing it wrong. We ought to consider everybody God puts a stewardship of, a, of us. We, we have a stewardship of all of our relationships. The word here for provoke is the word paroxysmos. It's where we get the idea of stimulation or provocation. It can mean encouragement, and it can also mean sharp, sharp disagreement. The idea is to stir up. The idea is not disconnected from what he was saying. He's saying, let us endure without wavering. He's saying, let us stay true to Jesus. And I don't know about you, but sometimes, for me, I get to places in my life where I am tempted not to be faithful to Jesus. Anybody here like that? in a moment of sin, in a moment of temptation, when I'm tired. Anybody here ever tired? I can point a few out that I know are tired. <laughs> You're trying to recover right now. In those moments, it's easy for us to mess up and to, to not be faithful. To, to We need each other, brethren. We need each other. He said, let's consider one another to provoke 
Let's endure without wavering. Let us stay true to Jesus. That's easy for us to waver from, so we need each other. This is not a time for fence-sitting or neutrality. It's certainly not a time for regression. It's a time for progression towards love and to good work. Good works. Who here needs love? Yeah, we do. If you think you don't, you're in trouble. You need people in your life. And they need you. Anybody here need encouragement? We need encouragement. Anybody here need accountability? I need it. We need accountability to be all that God wants God for us to be. Church, we need each other. How does that look? Well, verse 25, this is so cool. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. So what it doesn't look like, if you're going to endure without wavering, you're going to need the encouragement of other believers. What does that look like? How do we provoke one another to love and good works? Provoking can be encouragement to do good, and it could be, hey, you need to stop doing the wrong thing. Okay? It can be correction. It can be. Um, how, would, how would your family go if you never corrected your kids? wouldn't go well, right? So you need, how would your family go if you never encouraged your kids, right? So it's basic to human relationships that we need both. He says, let's consider one another to love into good works. Let's provoke one another unto love into good works. Well, what does that look like? Well, it definitely doesn't look like this, forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The word assembling here, you, you people who like, uh, Hebrews, this this is just right in there. The word assembling is the word episynugage. Episynugage. What does that sound like? Synagogue. Are you with me? It's used two times in Scripture. It's the act of being gathered together or assembled. Um, It has definite religious connotations to synagogue. So here's the preacher, who's definitely Jewish, talking primarily to Jewish believers and says, don't stop synagoguing. Right? Now, he's already told them, you don't have to do the ceremonial law anymore. You don't have to sacrifice anymore. We know from that book of Acts that they don't have to, they don't have, to have the dietary laws they had before. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. Right? That part. But he says, don't stop assembling. That's how some people do life. You don't do life that way. You, you keep coming together. What do they do in the synagogue? They sang. They read scripture. They prayed. Somebody stood up and took the scripture that was read and made sense of it. What does that sound like? Does that sound like what we do here? Gather for worship. Gather for reading of the word. Gather for fellowship. The word... For church is the word ecclesia, which literally means assembly. So this preacher is telling people who, who used to assemble at the synagogue to gather for singing, to gather for reading of the word, to gather for fellowship, or to keep on synagoguing. He's telling the ecclesia to keep ecclesiaing. He tells the assembly, don't stop assembling. And here's why that's so important. 
You can't provoke people to love and good works if you don't know each other. You can't provoke one another to love and good works if you don't have access to each other. So if you're watching online, we're so grateful that you are. But if that's all you're ever going to do, now there's some that maybe they have a, a, a physical reason, and man, that's better than nothing. But the assembly should assemble and should be here because you need encouragement and we need your encouragement. You need correction, we need correcting. Don't stop assembling as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. Exhorting means encouraging, teaching, instructing, reminding, influencing. How often should we do that? So much the more as you see the days, or the day, it says, approaching. The day here is a, an allusion to the day of the Lord. Jesus is sitting on his throne, but guess what he's going to do? At some point, he's coming back. In um, Matthew chapter 24, Jesus gives... Uh, what's called the Olivet Discourse. And it's because he's on the Mount of Olives and it's not a sermon per se, it's a conversation that he has with his disciples. He had been in the temple and he looked at them and said, hey, there's gonna come a time where not one stone is gonna be left on another. He said, all this is gonna happen. And in AD 70, that happened. Uh, the gold melted into the cracks as they were attacked and they literally, to get the gold in between the cracks of the stones, they they literally destroyed, every stone was lifted out to get all that. But Jesus in that time, speaking of, and uh, if you want to read more about this or understand more about this, I did, a, I did a series on Wednesday nights about a year ago. You can go to our website and find the series where I go into detail about this. But Jesus says that one of the signs of this coming day of the Lord, this thing that's gonna happen in the future, um, are birth pangs, what's called birth pangs. And anybody that's ever had a child or was related to someone that had a child, right, understands how the birthing process happens. You start having pain. There's contractions. And those contractions and that pain, the birth pangs, go from further between each other to closer. Are you with me? Who understands that? You start having them, and the closer the child gets to, to arriving outside of the mother, it's alive already, but coming, you know, being born, the closer the pain gets in duration. And also, the more intense. It goes from less intense to more intense. I believe with all my heart, as you read Matthew 24 and you study it and compare Scripture with Scripture, that that's talking about what's going to happen in the time of the tribulation, okay? So it's, the birth pangs are going to happen during the tribulation. And I believe with all my heart that I won't be here for the tribulation. I think there's a lot of reasons biblically to believe that, okay? So I'm pre-tribulational and what I believe, what the Bible talks about, the rapture. But what's interesting is that the birth pangs that Jesus talks about, uh, wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes, um, Antichrists, that that's going to happen 
a lot during the seven-year tribulation. And what I want you to know is that if you pay attention at all, you're seeing some of that stuff happen right now. Why am I saying that? The writer of Hebrews seems to indicate that there's the possibility of seeing the day approaching. Pay attention. He says, church, assembly, don't stop assembling. Don't forsake the synagoguing of yourselves together. Get together and pray and worship and love each other and provoke each other to love good works. I don't want to hold this over you as some kind of legalistic, you should be here Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and if you're not, you're in trouble. We're coming to find you. I'm making the case that he's making, and that is we need each other now more, not less. And we need encouragement and provoking of each other to love and good works now more, not less. So much the more as you see the day approaching. A faithful profession of faith vertically because of the faithful ministry and the promise of God to me should me should result in me encouraging others in that same way. Jesus has not only been faithful to me, but he's also made his life available to everyone. And so how do we how do we faithful how do we be faithful and endure our profession uh, hold on to our profession of faith without wavering. Well, one thing is we declare our profession of faith to the lost. People need to know that the day of the Lord is coming. People need to know that Jesus died on the cross. There's a sacrifice that's been made. You can have a relationship with God. You can draw near to God. And if you don't, you're going to spend eternity separated from God. So to the lost we say, Jesus is the only way. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And to the saved I say, do you realize, brethren, what's been done for you? Because we have boldness to enter. Because we have a high priest who's an advocate because he's sitting on the right hand of God and he's waiting, expecting one day for his enemies to be made. His footstool. I need to work out. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith. Let's endure without wavering. And let's gather together to encourage Christ's body. And as you disciple your children, as you disciple your family, as you lead your family, you need to understand that your priorities will become your kids' priorities. Your lack of priorities will become your kids' lack of priorities. Church is not something you do for when you're a kid and you grow out of it. It's something for life. Are you with me? So as we consider how we prioritize even our kids' activities, we need to consider 
what they need to be discipled in. And they're going to need, are you kidding? Do you think our kids will need the church in 20 years? 30 years? I believe you will. So, the closer we get to the day of our redemption, the more we should commit ourselves to one one another. The days are not getting easier. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me?